I am so grateful to our whole music team, all our singers and musicians for leading us as they have this morning. Aren't you? Thank you so much. What, a, what an incredible, what an incredible time of worship it's already been. I'm so grateful for that. If you hear a little frog in my throat, I want you to know I feel fine, but I am a little concerned about making it through this sermon. You should have chosen the 11 o'clock sermon because if I get stuck in this one, next one might be real short. <laughs> so I told them, turn my volume up just a little bit so I don't have to talk so loud. If I talk as if I have no energy, just know it's a lot of energy in my heart. I promise. I just can't get it through the throat. Oh, we're going to continue talking about faith this morning. We've been on the series of Faith Matters, and this morning I want to talk about faith and perseverance. Really important topic. You have faith. I have faith. We believe in God. We trust in God's promises. But there are times when we're trusting God for a miracle, and the miracle doesn't show up. And sometimes we think that's because we've somehow fallen short. Our faith isn't strong enough, but generally that's not the case. I do believe in miracles, but miracles aren't typical. If they were typical, we wouldn't call them miracles. Typical is God's call for us in faith to persevere, to endure, to allow him to work out his purposes that in the end he might be glorified. Faith and perseverance. That's what I want to talk about. And if you're in that place right now where you've prayed for God to intervene and it seems that God is silent, maybe this message is especially for you. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, it says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The testing of your faith. Your faith is tested anytime the cost seems too high or the reward too small. You know what I'm talking about, where you are following Christ and it, it requires you to make sacrifices you don't want to make or make commitments that are hard to fulfill, or trusting God, you find you suffer reverses and troubles, and you think, where's the reward for following Christ? It's at times like that that you're tempted to just throw up your hands, to just give it up. That is the testing of your faith. The word James uses for testing is dakimion. It's the word that was used for the fire through which an assayer would put precious metal. You want to purify that metal. You test it by fire. And so we are tested by fire. Anytime the cost is high, anytime the reward for faith seems small. What's interesting is there's a related word, dakame, 
Dakimion, Dakame. Dakame means character. And we are formed in Christian character as we pass through tests, as we're put through the fire. That's what James says in this passage when he says that this test, once we've passed through it, we become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Some of your translations might not say mature, it might say perfect. You become perfect and complete, not lacking anything. That's not a wrong translation. The Greek is teleos, and it means perfect. But it doesn't mean perfect in some abstract sense, as if you're just like Jesus without any flaw. It means perfect in the sense that you are able to fulfill what God intends for you. Teleos speaks of a kind of perfection that allows you one or an object, whatever it might be, a tool, to actually do what it's intended to do. So as we are put to the test, we're put through the fire and we endure through that, we are made fit instruments for God. And what God intends for our life can be fulfilled. His purpose for us is fulfilled because we become the kind of people that can do the work that he is destined for us to do. And so it's absolutely essential that we endure. How do we do that? James says we need to count it pure joy. Now, by that, he doesn't mean we just put on a happy face as if everything's always happy because often that is far from true. James is using a figure of speech. What he means is you count yourself fortunate because you know that God has not abandoned you. Whatever it looks like, God is still with you. He's at work in you. He's forming and shaping you, and he's going to bring things to a good conclusion. Therefore, you count yourself fortunate, blessed, James isn't talking about some phony, shallow display of happiness. He's talking about being mentally tough. That is, refusing to buckle under when things are hard and insisting that you believe in God and you trust that God is at work and you count yourself among the blessed. That's what he's talking about. And that's how you endure as a Christian endures. You know, there's some people that endure as if they're constantly carrying a burden and they're ready to break down and they complain about it. And you think, man, I wish they'd just endure it somewhere else. I mean, they're just always burdened under. But when James talks about perseverance or endurance, he uses the term hupamone. That's an interesting word. It means someone with pluck or grit or resilience. I love how the New Testament scholar William Barclay translates it. He says, it is triumphant fortitude. Triumphant fortitude. It's this sense that I am with God and God is with me and God will see me through. And I'll persevere because I know that to be the case. 
And so we are to endure, counting it all joy, because we know God is at work. The key, of course, is that we have to endure to the end. There's no quitting here. James says you have to let your perseverance complete its work. Some people are always wanting to escape their trials and their troubles. They're always running, looking for some easier way. And if they do that, they will not grow. See, God puts them in the fire and they're running out as quick as they can. And so the character is not formed. We need to learn to persevere right through what God has called us to walk through, knowing that God is going to see us through it. The ironic thing about all this, though, is that to endure in this way sometimes means we must surrender. We have to surrender. We have to stop fighting things as they are and as they must be, accepting the troubles and the trials and the testing through which we pass and looking to God to help us to deal with those. There's a psychologist named Jamie Aiden. He teaches up at Wheaton College. He's an expert in, in how people cope with disasters. He's been all over the world where disasters have happened, and he's interviewed people and with other of his associates. They've done research in this. How do people cope with disaster? He was studying it when Katrina hit the, the Gulf Coast. And he had learned some lessons along the way. But, but he soon found out that he would have to learn himself in a very personal way what it means to deal with a disaster. He writes about this in a book, a memoir, Walking Disaster. And that's how he refers to his life. 35 years old, he finds there's a pain shooting down his leg. He goes down to the doctor. They check him out. They say, well, just to, to exclude it, let's go ahead and do a colonoscopy. You don't really need to worry. At your age, less than 1% of people have colon cancer, but we need to check just in case. And so they did the colonoscopy, and Jamie Ayton had colon cancer. What's more, it had spread. There was now a tumor in his pelvis sitting on a bundle of nerves, and that's what was causing the shooting pain going down his leg. It was stage four cancer, and the doctor said, you know, this is serious. I don't, I don't know exactly where this is going to lead. And he says, well, will I be able to recover? He says, Jamie, I just... I can't tell you that. I don't know. But if there's some people that you need to get with, there's some things you need to do, you need to attend to that. When he got that word, he said he just broke down, started crying in the office. The doctor felt awkward. He felt awkward. So the physician asked him, he said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I, I study how people respond to disasters. I'm a college professor at Wheaton. And in perhaps not the best, most pastoral response, the doctor said, well, it looks like you've got your own personal disaster to deal with. And so he did. 
So Jamie began to pray, God, take this away. God, take this away. And he continued to pray for healing. He had to go through one surgery, then another is a series of surgeries. He was taking chemotherapy for a year. You can imagine how his health began to decline because of that. It was a terrible year. Throughout it, he would pray, God, deliver me from this. Deliver me from the pain. Deliver me from these unexpected bouts of crying. He was humiliated by how he had just burst out in tears. One day... There's snow on the ground outside and the wind is whipping through and the snow is swirling in the air and he realizes that the garbage and the recycler, they haven't been put out yet, so he decides he's going to put them out. He bundles himself up and he walks outside. The wind hits him and because of the chemotherapy, his skin was super sensitive and he said it felt like razors cutting into his face and his hands and his feet. The entire way he's walking out he, to the, to the, to the uh, curb with the, with the bins, he says, Lord, please deliver me of this. Please heal me of this. Please help me with this. As he's walking back, he continues to pray. He has to climb some stairs to get back into his house. He's absolutely exhausted already. Just that small bit of work, he was exhausted. He walks back into his bedroom. He leans on the post of his bed, puts another hand on the mattress to hold himself up. He said he found himself just sliding down and collapsing on his knees to pray. And he began to pray, God, deliver me. God, save me. God, heal me. And somewhere in the course of that prayer, something was born in his soul, and he began to pray differently. He said it was the hardest prayer he had ever prayed. But he said, Lord, I want you to heal me. But if you don't, and I know you may not, if you don't, I want you to take care of my wife and my girls. Please take care of them. He began to pray, not simply that he would be healed, but that God through what everything that he was was dealing with, that God would be at work and God would be at work in his family. He said a peace came over him. He hadn't known since the diagnosis had come. It just flooded over him for the first time. He got up off his knees and he laid down in the bed and the words came through his mind, spiritual surrender. He realized that he had come to a place of deep surrender to God. Now, his research had shown that people who go through disasters do better if they're able to let it go, to surrender, to to just Accept what's happened. Not, don't fight it, but ask how in the midst of it you can, you can make a forward movement. And now he was finding in his own experience that he had to surrender. From that point, it was different. Instead of using all his energy fighting 
the circumstances in which he was living, he put himself entirely in God's hands and began trusting God to help him deal with whatever each day brought his way. He says in his book, there are some people that don't think that's quite the right way to pray or the right way to go about it. They think that faith means you have to hold on for the miracle or you don't have faith. He said, all I can say is that I felt in my own life that what God was requiring of me was to surrender. And so he did. Now, he's one of the fortunate ones. Several years have passed. He's, he's still cancer-free, but he knows at any time, at any time, he could receive a bad word from the doctor. And his body has been deeply affected by the surgeries and by the chemotherapy. And so his health is not as robust as it was at one time. So he knows that. But now the battle is not with God. God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Now he's taking this as a test of faith and he's trusting God, counting himself fortunate and walking through it, trusting that God will help him to meet whatever challenge that he has. That's what we have to do if we want to endure the way James is talking about. We have to be willing to accept what is, trusting God in the midst of it, and then trusting God to help us deal with it. This runs so counter to the way we think. That's why, that, that's why we're so ready to hear people who say, faith means you hold on for the miracle. Don't ever doubt that you'll get the miracle or you won't get it. See, that, that rings true to us because of the way we often think about life. Dr. Marks, how many, how many commencement speeches have you heard in your life? I bet you've heard a lot, haven't you? 73. 73. You actually have counted them? <laughs> Engineers. When I was in seminary, they warned me about engineers in church. So Dr. Robert Marks has been to 73 commencement service or uh, events, whatever. Um, now, I, I haven't been to that many, not nearly that many. But, you know, sometimes the speak, speeches are quite good. You know, sometimes what's said is very helpful and sometimes not so much. But there's sort of a stereotypical message that's often shared or often has been. It's something like this. You can do anything. You can do anything. You need to dream. You need to follow your passions. Let your passion guide you. Never mind what other people say. You do what is in your heart, what your passion calls you to do, and you live for that passion. And behind it is this kind of idea that what we need to do is to find what in our heart of hearts we want. It may be different from what everybody else wants, but it's what we want. It's our passion. And then we do everything we can in life to secure it. We plan it. We, we lay it out and do everything we can to fulfill that passion for life. 
Of course, it doesn't always go that way, right? That's plan A. Ira Glass, who is the host for This American Life, he was speaking to a group one time. It's about 100 people in a room. And um, he asked them, how many of you are still pursuing plan A? I mean, that passion that you had. How many of you are still pursuing plan A? Raise your hand. One person raised her hand. She was 23 years old. Everybody else was on plan B. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is for Christians, it's not a matter of discovering our passion and then then demanding of life, demanding that, that our life conforms to it, trying to control everything so that we can pursue our passion. That's not what it's about. We don't, we don't demand of life. We answer the call that life brings to us. Life questions us. It's not a matter of finding the passion in your heart. It's a matter of discerning what life demands of you because what life demands is what God is calling you to. It's in that that you find your vocation. I've talked to you before about Viktor Frankl. What an amazing man he was. He was a psychiatrist in Vienna, and he, along with his family, was, was arrested by the, the Germans and put into concentration camps. He went to several of them. Most of the time, he was working uh, on railroads. But of course, he knew many people who died of illnesses, there in the camps, and of course, many were gassed. And he never knew what was going to happen to him the entire time he was there. He survived, but his wife didn't survive. His family didn't survive. It was a horrific experience. And what Frankel says is that he and others learned that it wasn't a question of what they wanted. It was a question of what was demanded of them. They had to answer the challenge of life, and that is where you find meaning. You don't find meaning by inventing it in your own heart. You find it by meeting what comes your way. That's how you find it. Let me read to you something Franco says. It did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking the meaning of life and instead think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. See, when when things are hard, when when we're being tested, we are being tested God isn't being tested. It's not a question of whether God measures up, whether God's fair, whether God's righteous, whether God's merciful and faithful. God is all those things. That's not the question. The question is, will we answer the call? And the call comes in the the details of life and even the difficulties of life. That's where it comes. That's where we discover our meaning and purpose in life. And often it's not what we expected, but it is the call of God. You could even say it's God's 
It's, it's, it's God's vocation. That is, I put that backwards. It's God calling us to our vocation. What are we called to? Life tells us. Meeting that challenge tells us. Billy Graham, we all know, uh, one of the great Christian leaders in history, uh, certainly more influential in the last, oh, 60 years than just about any other person within the evangelical church, certainly more than any other person, I think we could say. <coughs> I got to pause just a second. Let me take a sip. What you put in that water, Linda? <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <clears throat> so, a person that you perhaps have not heard of, but was nearly as influential in this last generation, is a man named John Stott. He was the the an uh, Anglican pastor at All Souls Church in London, but he also was a theologian, an author, an evangelist, a Christian leader, and an important leader in world Christianity. His last years, he spent everything he had, um, and I mean that literally, from, from the royalties to his books to his last drop of energy, seeking to build up the church around the world. Oz Guinness, another stalwart among evangelicals, knew Stott for many, many years, and he went to visit him shortly before his death. And they were talking old memories and, and just, just connecting as friends. They talked for nearly an hour, though for Stott it was difficult to say anything. He would barely whisper whatever he had to say. Before he's left, Oz Guinness asked him, what would you like me to pray for you. And he said, pray that I will remain faithful to Jesus until my last breath. See, that's not about finding your passion. That's not about carving out your own life, determining your own destiny, being a master of your fate. That's faithful to Jesus. And when we're being tested, we're being questioned. Will we be faithful to Jesus? If you'll remain faithful, count yourself blessed and continue on, you will be shaped into the kind of person that God can use. And you'll be shaped in the way God wants you that he'll be able to do through you what he's created you to do. And so that's what we're called to. I want to close reading from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been with us all the way to this day, Lord, as we, as we sit here today, we know that you've been with us and you're with us now and you'll be with us, Lord, through whatever we must pass. Help us, God, to have the faith that perseveres. Lord, give us triumphant fortitude. Help us, Lord, to seize hold of that to which you have called us to. Thank you, God, that even the most severe trial has a purpose that's been filtered through your love. We bless you for it and love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.